even if you controlled what somebody was eating, such that one group of people wasn't getting enough sleep and the other group was getting as, as much sleep as they need, but you gave them standardized diets. The people who weren't getting enough sleep would likely end up with worse body composition over time, even if their body weight wasn't meaningfully different. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Hi friends, I hope you are well and that you're sleeping well. This is, I'm recording this on World Sleep Day. And if you're not sleeping well, or maybe you just even want to improve your sleep even more, then you're in for a treat because I'm sitting down with third time guest on the show, Dr. Greg Potter, who is a world expert in sleep optimization and specifically aligning with your chronotype and your circadian rhythm to enhance performance both from a mental and physical perspective. So more on that in a moment, but I want to tell you about something exciting, something that I have been working on behind the scenes for some time that I am getting very, very excited to launch in the next few weeks. And that is my brand new membership, Female Biohacker Collective. It is a place for all you women who love biohacking your way to your best self to come together as a community and support each other. And also there will be monthly masterclasses from me where you can learn the latest science, biohacks and holistic practices for optimal health and longevity. But not just that, we're also going to be doing monthly challenges. So if you've been thinking about how can I stay on track or how can I, how can I introduce a new habit each month and capitalize on that and be held accountable for it uh, in combination with a bunch of other people who want to do the same, then the Female Biohacker Collective is going to be your place to do exactly just that. You will have accountability. There will be a monthly Q&A and we will teach you how to really become your own biohacker. And month on month, you will be making new changes to your life to upgrade your mental, physical and spiritual health. And those changes compound over time. And so you can just think that if you join this where you will be by the end of the year, you'll get a very cool biohacking toolbox There will be, as I say, a monthly live challenge and to follow in the next couple of months will be a biohacking book club as part of the membership where we will be recommending a new book each month to optimize your mind, body or spirit. And if you don't have time to read, don't worry, because you're still going to get my video class, cliff notes and infographic on the book. So you'll just be able to look through my cliff notes and take the key points away and start integrating them into your busy life. So if you want to find out the details, it is not open yet, but you can go and check out all of the details over at bit.ly forward slash female hyphen biohacker. That's bit.ly forward slash female hyphen biohacker. Sorry about my dog barking in the background there. Now, if you go to that page, you can register your interest and you will then be the first to know when it launches mid-April. So just go and pop your name and your email 
address in there. There's going to be limited spots on the founding members offer and you will be the first to know. So that's over at bit.ly forward slash female hyphen biohacker. I'm so excited about this. But anyways, now moving back onto today's podcast episode. So in today's episode, I'm sitting down with third time guest on the show, Dr. Greg Potter, who is fascinated by how to enable people to change their behaviors to sustainably improve their health and performance around the clock and across lifespan. Greg's also the co-founder and chief science officer of Resilient Nutrition, which is a nutrition and supplement company that simplifies the process of feeling better and performing better. And I've taken a few of their products that I really, really like. First of all, they taste incredible. They have the definitely the best range of nut butters on the market. They taste so good and have some special adaptogenic ingredients in them that can help you to kind of calm yourself or even energize yourself depending on which one you choose. And they're absolutely delicious tasting, as I say. They also have this amazing supplement called Switch On, which is very new and essentially contains specific ingredients, which we talk about at the end of the show, that can help to make up for sleep deficits. So if you're underslept and you really need to bring that energy the next day, then this could be a great drink for you to have first thing in the morning. And we talk specifically why the ingredients in that are so powerful and effective. And that works both for mental performance and also physical performance. But firstly, in today's episode, we're going to be talking all about sleep and demystifying many of the things around sleep because more isn't necessarily better. And actually what we really need to be focusing on is our sleep quality and our circadian alignment and specifically our alignment with our chronotype. And if you are in one of my programs where we do DNA testing, for example, you'll be familiar with whether you are an early morning type, a mixed type or a night owl. And this podcast will really help you to optimize your working day, your productivity, your workouts and your sleep around your chronotype. We also talk about how sleep really impacts things like metabolism and insulin sensitivity and how it can contribute quite dramatically to weight loss resistance. And if you're underslept or you're working shifts, we really dive into the science of what you can do to help yourself feel better, protect your longevity and enhance your performance. It's a jam-packed episode today. Uh, I'm so excited to release it. And so without further delay, let me introduce you now to the lovely Greg Potter. So I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Greg Potter, who is a complete expert in everything about sleep. He's also the co-founder at Resilient Nutrition. He is also, I think, my only third time guest on the podcast, which is very exciting. So it's lovely to have you back, Greg. First of all, a very warm welcome. Thanks, Angela. I had no idea that I am the first guest that's achieved the hat trick. So I'm delighted about that. You have indeed. So welcome and congratulations. And I couldn't think of a better day to be recording this with you than World Sleep Day. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's very, very timely. Um, and we're going to be diving into sleep, obviously, and also your particular expertise in terms of how to optimize your nutrition around your chronotype and also make up for things like sleep deficits. So we have a lot to get through. It's going to be fast paced and I'm excited with the content. Um Let's just kick off, I guess, first of all, with um, the effects of chronic undersleeping, because this is something that I'm seeing 
and also have experienced because I've had a few personal situations going on in my life recently. And I'm definitely undersleeping a bit at the moment. There are certain things I've been taking that we can talk about that really help to make up for some of those deficits. But just generally, I think with this whole work from home and now we're in that crazy work from home, people are working, it seems, longer than ever before. They're not getting much downtime. And I think it is impacting their sleep. For people who are constantly falling short of that seven to eight hours that we should be getting, what are the effects um, that we can expect in terms of sort of short-term and long-term effects on the brain? The effects are very far-reaching. So if we focus on the short-term effects on brain function, then obviously one of them is that you're going to be more sleepy and that's going to influence your risk of things such as traffic accidents. You're probably going to struggle to maintain your attention at work. You might struggle with your working memory. You might find that it affects your mood. And one thing that I'll mention is that people respond to insufficient sleep quite differently, such that some people are in some ways able to preserve some aspects of brain function quite well when they hadn't had enough sleep, but they might suffer in other ways. So it's not necessarily that somebody is quite resistant to the effects of short sleep across the board. They might find that it doesn't affect their attention much, but it does affect their working memory substantially, for example. In terms of longer-term brain health, we know quite a lot about how sleep influences risk of various different neurodegenerative diseases and also the likelihood of developing cognitive dysfunction over time. And if you look at diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, then in many instances, different forms of sleep disruption can precede their onset by decades. And we also know something about the biological basis of that. And then you asked about the more general effects of insufficient sleep on other aspects of the body. So if we just touch on some of those briefly, in terms of cardiometabolic health, your sleep affects your body composition. And people who report short sleep tend to be more likely to go on to develop obesity over time. Some of the mechanisms underlying that are very well characterized. They're also high risk of developing type 2 diabetes, different components of the metabolic syndrome. And particularly relevant right now, insufficient sleep also disposes people to developing certain types of infections over time. And we might want to circle back to COVID-19 and sleep later. And then just touching on a couple more ways by which not getting enough slumber affects us. One of them is appearance. There's been some entertaining research by some Swedish researchers showing that if you deprive somebody of sleep, then show other people images of that person, they will rate them as being less physically attractive. And they also say that they'd be less inclined to socialize with those people. And then there are the effects of insufficient sleep on your physical performance too. Mm. And those effects are probably strongest for certain types of activities. So if you look, for example, at strength training performance, then acute sleep deprivation probably doesn't strongly affect maximal strength in a lot of exercises. However, regularly not getting enough sleep is likely to impair strength endurance. So if you're going to the gym and doing three sets of 10 squats, for instance, then you probably wouldn't be able to complete as much work if you were habitually short on sleep. And this is also relevant to endurance exercise performance too. And in general, people 
can't create the same output in that type of exercise if they haven't got enough sleep. And they also rate the exercise as being more taxing. And then there's also coordination too, but I'll pause there because that's quite a lot of information already. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot, it's profound. And, and some of the things that you're talking about there, I definitely notice. right? When you say in terms of attractiveness, like skin, I know that if I'm underslept, my skin definitely doesn't look as glowing, right? Even even simple things, like if you're getting ready to go out and you put makeup on, it actually just won't even stay on. It has a different texture quite quickly, not after necessarily one night, but after a series of sort of less, less well underslept when I'm underslept. Um, but with what I noticed interestingly with metabolism, and I think this is really interesting for those people that are listening to this, is some people really genuinely struggle to lose weight and they feel as though they're not eating enough. They're not eating that much. But what I have noticed is sleep really is probably a big destroyer of consistency, right? Because when we want to, you know, as you know, I'm not a fan of dieting. So when you introduce a healthy lifestyle, what I find is those habits and behaviors are much more difficult to introduce to somebody on a consistent basis when they're underslept, because often they will crave different types of foods, um, looking particularly at like, you know, I've had clients who are shift workers, for example, um, and they may be up all night. And then the, the type of food that they're going to feel like eating is quite different to a client who has slept very well, has a really good stable circadian rhythm, and is actually looking more for healthy foods. It's almost like we seek out something comforting when we're underslept. And I notice that if I'm traveling, for example, that can happen. Um, can you explain what, why that would be before we kind of dive deeper into the me metabolic effects? Yeah. Historically, a lot of people have thought that that is based on changes in some appetite and hunger hormones, such as leptin and ghrelin. And there has been some work suggesting that if somebody doesn't get enough sleep, then you'll tend to see reductions in circulating leptin levels. Leptin is a hormone that's secreted primarily by fat tissue that signals your overall energy status to the brain. So somebody has more fat, has more leptin, and that, if leptin signaling is appropriate, will tend to reduce food intake. Ghrelin, on the other hand, is a hormone that's synthesized mostly by some cells in the stomach. And you see pulses of ghrelin around habitual meal times, and those promote food intake. They make you more hungry. And so after insufficient sleep, you might expect le leptin levels to be lower, ghrelin levels to be higher. And for those to be the basis of the fact that on average, people consume about 253 calories more each day if they haven't had enough sleep. However, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case based on more recent research. And instead, what seems to be going on is a few things. One of those is just that the longer that you're awake each day, the more time there is in which to eat. And so after insufficient sleep, someone might spread out their food intake over a longer period. And in particular, if they end up consuming more food late in the day, quite close to their bedtime, then because of the way that our body's clocks influence our metabolism, we're more likely to deposit those nutrients in fat tissue than in fat-free mass. Another factor that's at play is the quality of the nutrition that we consume, which is something that you touched on. And... People tend to snack more after insufficient sleep. 
And you might see this slightly more in men. So one interesting nuance to this conversation that's only become clear in recent times is that men and women might respond slightly differently to insufficient sleep and how it affects food intake, such that if anything, men are more prone to overeating after sleep loss than women are. Speaking very general terms, because again, some people respond to sleep deprivation by eating less. Some people respond by eating much, much more. And on average, people respond by eating more. And then there's, of course, also a brain basis of these changes in food intake too. So if people historically looked at the periphery, so what's going on elsewhere in the body, nowadays more people are looking at what's happening inside the brain and how that's driving food intake. And one difference in the brain that you see after insufficient sleep is that some parts of the frontal cortex, which is a relatively recently evolved part of the brain, particularly important to decision-making and overriding impulses, communicate less effectively with parts of the brain that are involved in impulsivity. And so we're less able to override our desires for certain things. And that explains the fact that after insufficient sleep, we're more impulsive in general. We're more likely to gamble, for example, and engage in various different risk-taking behaviours. That's interesting. So actually with food, it becomes, if, you, if you're trying to lose weight and you're not, you're either underslept or you're not in circadian rhythm alignment and you're disrupted in that way of shift working, it's quite a challenge because you're in that situation where you're now more impulsive, you're sort of craving things, you feel quite tired, you're probably looking for more junk, you've got, you feel a bit hungry, you've got less control because you're not feeling quite so full. And then as I understand it from reading Matthew Walker's book, I think he says that, you know, when they've looked at studies, uh, a poor night's sleep, just one, uh, when I think you get to sort of as low as five hours can make you as insulin desensitized as a type two diabetic. Well, then that you know, insulin causes the body to store more fat as well. So it's actually quite a challenge then for, for people. And there does seem to be a correlation. Like if you go into settings where there are regular shift workers, like hospitals, for example, doctors and nurses, you do, you do tend to see actually more overweight represent, representation in certain job environments. Yeah. And I think one important point to make is that even if you controlled what somebody was eating, such that one group of people wasn't getting enough sleep and the other group was getting as, as much sleep as they need, but you gave them standardized diets. The people who weren't getting enough sleep would likely end up with worse body composition over time, even if their body weight wasn't meaningfully different. It's been some really nice research over the years by scientists at universities such as Chicago and I'm thinking specifically of some work by Arlette Nedelcheva that was done in 2011. And they divided participants into a couple of different groups. And over the course of a few weeks, one group was allowed enough time in bed and the other wasn't. But they standardized their diets and they found that weight loss was equivalent between groups. But the group that wasn't getting enough sleep ended up losing 55% less fat mass. Wow. So they lost more skeletal muscle mass potentially more bone mass and so on too. Which is then and, working against them, right? Because they're dropping yeah, muscle mass. Yeah, so there's a double whammy in that not getting enough sleep is both making it harder to make good food choices. And that was controlled for in that particular study. And also 
the composition of the body after food intake is going to be worse after insufficient food. So you're, you're likely going to end up both heavier and then at a given body weight with more fat mass and less muscle mass. Very interesting. So talking about metabolism, I've been using a very cool device recently called the Lumen. And the Lumen measures your respiratory exchange ratio and comes up with daily suggestions on the amount of carbohydrates you should be including to help you transition easily between burning carbs and fats as fuel. It also shows you what state you wake up in. So are you waking up in a, in a fat burning state? Um, what is your reaction after certain foods when you've eaten them? How quickly do you recover from exercise? It's a very, very cool device and it helps you to really personalize your nutrition and they have great results on using this in terms of achieving enhanced weight loss and also improving overall health and boosting things like energy and mood. And you get immediate feedback when you breathe into this about whether you're burning fats or carbs or both. And it's been really interesting seeing the insights for me, um, depending on what I've eaten in the evening and how close to bedtime I might have eaten as to whether I wake up in a fat burning mode and also getting those daily recommendations which are super super helpful and lumen have very kindly given listeners of this podcast a cool 10 percent off their device all you need to do is to head over to lumen who are at www.lumen.me and enter code angela all in capitals at checkout that's lumen.me and you just simply enter coupon code angela at checkout and that's angela all in capitals it's so easy to do you will love the recommendations that it gives you and it will really help you develop and hone that metabolic flexibility if like me you want to develop and maintain that as a cornerstone of longevity now let's get back to the show you say so you know for people listening they could be lawyers like I was working through the night to pull off a transaction people who regularly you know that's that's more I wouldn't say occasional it happens frequently in in the corporate environment in the city particularly with investment bankers and then you have other people who maybe do work in a hospital setting and are called to do this more regularly when they haven't for whatever reason slept so I, I would in that environment have regularly pushed through on two hours sleep sometimes on no sleep if you then have an opportunity, what should you be doing? Like, should you be coming home and trying to go to sleep and get a block of sleep? Is there a perfect amount? How do you then not screw up? Like, it, I, I guess the thing I struggle with is I would work very, very intensively in that situation. And then I would pretty much crash and catch up. And I didn't have children at that point, so it was easier to do. For people who are regularly on shift working, that's a bit harder because they'll be working some nights and like doctors, for example, and then they're going to not be working other nights. What should they be doing? Like, do they come and sleep during the day? What's the best thing to do? Or should you have one routine only that you just hold all the time? So I think the best guidance relates to both the organization and the individual, but I'm going to skip the organization, just focus on the person. And I'll break my answer down into a few sections. So I want us to do with sleep itself. And the goal with shift work in general, should be to try and anchor your sleep to consistent times from one day to the next. Obviously, if you're working rotating shifts, then that's going to interfere with your ability to do that. But the point is to maintain a sleep schedule that's as regular as possible from one day to the next. 
And for some people, that might, might mean regularly sleeping while the sun is up because they consistently work nights. And one of the tricky things with night shift work is just that people are often trying to sleep when the sun's up and that's likely to disturb their sleep in many ways. But one is just that it's going to be warmer in the bedroom than it otherwise would be. And so people might need to pay more attention to keeping themselves cool while they try and sleep. Another is that there's going to be more light coming in through the windows. And so maybe you need to focus on using blackout lines, sleep mask, or some other way of minimizing your exposure to light while you try and sleep. I think otherwise you're going to benefit from naps now and then, and you can use those judiciously such that you can help reduce the likelihood of you experiencing something like an accident. And one of the things to bear in mind with naps is just that there's generally a period shortly after you wake up in which you experience sleep inertia, which is that grogginess that you feel that temporarily interferes with your brain functions due to things like reductions in blood flow to the brain. But because of that, if you do nap and do so with a view to boosting your alertness so that you can then drive safely, for example, you don't want to start driving immediately after the nap. You want to wait a brief period, wait for that grogginess to subside and then do the activity that has a safety component to it. In general, I think naps of 20 to 30 minutes work quite well. To be honest, the data on optimal napping duration aren't that clear. The issue with longer naps is that they're more likely to contain deep sleep, slow wave sleep. And while that will be more restorative in the long term, it will give you a long-term boost in alertness. In the short term, you're going to experience more of that sleep inertia that I just mentioned. Light exposure is another key variable. So if you're working hard on something and you're feeling a bit sleepy at the time and you're struggling, if you can expose yourself to strong overhead lighting, then that will give you a short-term boost in your brain function, how alert you feel, potentially your mood and your working memory too. And obviously, inappropriate timing of light exposure can also disrupt your body's clock and therefore your sleep-wake cycle. But I'm just saying on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, changing your light exposure can quite strongly affect your brain function. Exercise is, of course, a key variable too. And say that somebody's struggling to adapt to night shifts, they might find that if they do some exercise during what would previously have been their biological night and expose themselves to lots of light at this time, that will help them adjust to the shifts. And workplaces that contain areas in which to exercise are therefore in many ways conducive to employee health, but also the performance of the people working there. And then with respect to nutrition, as is true of sleep, trying to maintain meal times that are as regular as possible is going to help with adaptation to shift schedules. And there's been some interesting work on this relatively recently by people such as Frank Shear, showing that if you maintain a fixed eating schedule during body clock disruption by changing people's patterns of light exposure, they maintain better blood sugar regulation than people who have variable meal timing. And those experiments have been quite well controlled. So I think just trying to maintain a regular eating window is going to be helpful. And then outside of that eating window, if you're going to eat, you want the snacks to be relatively small, so maybe 10% of daily energy intake or less. 
probably relatively high in protein, high in fiber, low in carbohydrate, relatively low in fat to keep the energy content of them down and ideally quite easy to digest too. So high protein foods plus vegetables work well as snacks at those times. But I recognize that one of the issues here is convenience. So if you can find yourself a, a protein bar, for example, that you enjoy keeping some of those on yourself might be helpful at those times of day and it might help you avoid going to the vending machine and getting some crisps and a Coke. And then finally, I'll just touch on a couple of specific substances, one being caffeine. And it's common to see a pattern in people who work shifts or struggle with their sleep in which they consume a lot of caffeine during wakefulness. And then around bedtime, they take some sort of hypnotic to try and support their sleep. And that can be a vicious cycle. And so again, while caffeine can be helpful, you want to use it in an intelligent, informed way. And for shift workers, I think regular low doses of caffeine tend to work quite well. Finishing your final dose of caffeine for shift workers, probably no later than about four to six hours before when you plan to go to bed. For somebody who doesn't work shifts, I generally recommend finishing earlier than that. So probably no later than about eight hours before bed. And the individual doses of caffeine for shift workers should be quite small. Maybe you have an instant coffee as opposed to having a, a store-bought Americana that has something like three times the caffeine. And then finally, the other substance is melatonin. And melatonin is a complicated subject. We could easily do a podcast about melatonin alone, but for shift workers, there is research showing that if you take melatonin at an appropriate time of day, then you can reduce circadian misalignment. So disruption to your body's clock. And as a result of that experience, some beneficial effects on your metabolic health. And I, I wouldn't be comfortable giving hard and fast guidelines, but the work that showed that recently had people take melatonin just an hour before bedtime on their off days. And they found that independent of changes in food intake, that led to improved body composition and improvements in some other markers of metabolic health too over time. But one of the issues of melatonin is just quality control. And another issue is access here in the UK. You can't just get over the counter. And regarding quality control, there's been some interesting research showing that if you just take melatonin supplements off the shelves in a supplement shop in countries such as America and you measure what's in them, there can be a huge discrepancy between the claimed contents and the actual contents. And in that particular study, they found that the concentration of melatonin varied from something like 80% less than what was listed to about 480% more. And some of them contained serotonin too. So <laughs> you want to find a good source if you are going to use it. And for that reason, I don't tend to recommend it at large. I'm just saying that used intelligently, it can be helpful. Mm. And um, that's interesting, those metabolic effects, actually. And at what dose uh, for someone, not, not for somebody who's traveling and is necessarily trying to really shift their uh, circadian clock, but for someone who's a shift worker, what kind of dose? Because from what my understanding is, actually, you don't need very much people overdo melatonin. If memory serves, the dose in that particular study was three milligrams. Yeah. And the dose is a bit tricky because the best dose depends on why you're using melatonin. If you're using it to shift your clock, lower doses tend to be best. Doses between maybe 300 micrograms and one milligram. 
and I won't get into boring details, but the reason relates to the fact that if you take large doses, they'll stay in your body longer. And what that means is that the melatonin is more likely to spill over to the part of the so-called phase response curve that you don't want. Phase response curve just describes the relationship between when you take melatonin and how it influences your body's clock. Because Angela, if you took melatonin today, six hours or five hours before you normally go to bed, that would tend to pull your sleep earlier. Whereas if you took it tomorrow morning, when you woke up in the morning, that would tend to push your sleep wake timing later. And so if you've got the melatonin hanging around for a longer period, it could be that it ends up being in your system during both the phase when it's pulling your clock in one direction and the phase when it's pushing it in another one. So, so let me just, like, just so people get that. So if you, if you take it in the evening about an hour before bed, it's likely to bring your, or is it earlier than that? It will bring your sleep time. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's earlier than that. There, there are so-called dead zones, times of day at which if you take it, it won't really move your clock much. And if you take it about one hour before bed, it won't tend to shift your clock around much because your brain typically starts synthesizing substantially more melatonin about one and a half to two hours before you habitually fall asleep. And so if you took melatonin around that time, that's right when your pineal gland is starting to crank out a lot more melatonin than it was. However, if you take it four hours before bed, your brain's not normally producing much, if any, melatonin. And so that will have an effect on your body's clockwork. In terms of bringing it forward, you'd feel tired yeah. earlier in the evening. But then if you take it in the morning, what you're saying is you may actually be pushing that bedtime a lot later. Yeah, so think of it as extending your biological nighttime. When I say biological nighttime, I'm talking about the time of day in which your pineal gland is synthesizing lots of melatonin. And at that time of day, your body is suited to resting and fasting. And so if you take melatonin in the morning when you wake up, that is normally right around the end of your biological nighttime, assuming you don't wake up really early to an alarm. And so at that time, normally, especially when you get out into some sort of brightly lit room or outside, your brain will practically stop synthesizing any melatonin. melatonin. But if you then take melatonin, you're extending your biological nighttime. And if you do that regularly at that time of day over time, then you're going to push your clock later. Does that make sense? Mm, it does make sense. Um, and I guess, I guess the last question, because uh, I know you formulated that I do want to talk about a, a really quality supplement to help people are underslept. If they've got, uh, if, if someone has experienced a poor night's sleep or they're a shift worker, for example, um, are they better off completing that night's, that night's work? Because you mentioned possibly going and doing things like exercising, getting access to sunlight might give you more energy in the morning. Would it be better then that they kind of have our morning, right, and go with that and then in the afternoon before work have a block of sleep? Or is it better to finish that shift and immediately sleep? Because that's what people tend to do, it seems, is to actually go and sleep then in the morning and then just begin their day later than everyone else. I'm just curious from the research you've seen and your own studies, um, whether actually it would be better to postpone, have a start your day and just then sleep and then be up again, which is a little bit strange in a way. Yeah, it, it's always tricky to give hard and fast recommendations. And, and that's for a few reasons. One of them is just the timing of the shift the next day. So if, for example, you had somebody who's working night shift and they finished work at 
6 a.m. But the following day, they're trying to get back onto a, a normal schedule because they've soon got some day shifts coming up. Then it might make sense for them to have a relatively short sleep afterwards and then to get up and out during the day while the sun's up. And that might help them then get back onto that daytime schedule more quickly. They're going to be very sleepy that first day potentially, but they might find that that following night they sleep more than normal and they feel like they're more or less back on time the day after that. Another issue is just <laughs> you don't want people to try and sleep when sleep is not going to happen. And among shift workers, it's common to see something named shift work disorder. And that's a sleep disorder in which <laughs> people struggle with daytime fatigue and sleepiness. So then they try and sleep after shift. So it just doesn't happen. And the reason, of course, is that they're trying to sleep at an inappropriate time relative to the timing of their biological clock. And, and that's why it's so important to try and maintain regular sleep-wake schedules for these people, but also to not force sleep if it's not going to happen. And so in general, when I speak about sleep, I emphasize the fact that if you're struggling with your sleep, it's really important to only go to bed when you are actually sleepy. Sometimes things like melatonin can help with that acutely. Again, I wouldn't recommend it at large, but they definitely have their place. But just to tie something else into this conversation, we might have spoken about this previously, Angela, but one really important concept for people to understand related sleep is named stimulus control of behavior. And the idea is just that some stimuli predictably lead us to engage in certain behaviors because our brains are very good at creating associations between things. And so if you're driving Angela and you're approaching a red light because you've been trained to brake as you approach a red light, you're going to reflexively start to decelerate. And what happens in people who struggle with their sleep in instances such as insomnia is that because people spend lots of time awake in bed, they learn to associate being in bed with being awake and they need to retrain themselves to associate being in bed with being asleep. And to that end, it's key that they only go to bed when they're actually sleepy. They save their bed for sex and sleep only. So no scrolling on your phone in bed, no reading in bed if you're really struggling with your sleep, no difficult conversations with your partner, none of that. And then if you've been lying in bed intending to sleep for 15 minutes or so and you haven't fallen asleep, then you should get out of bed, go to a different room, do something relaxing and dim lighting and then only return to bed when you're actually sleepy. And you might also want to use an alarm clock to regularize your sleep, but I'll, I'll pause there in case there's anything that you want to pick up on. Hmm. I guess what, what's interesting to me is when you're trying to optimize your sleep, I think that, um, I, and, and it's, this is a battle that I'm noticing. So I'm very much an early morning type. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm pretty much, and I know some people find this hard, right? Because actually they, I know my husband, for example, if he goes and works out in the morning, he's more prone to injury because his body almost isn't ready for it. And I wouldn't say he's a night owl by any stretch, but he's just not really quite up and going in the same way that I am. Whereas for me, my morning is my prime time. And so the, the most difficult thing for me is actually choosing which activity. Because I know if I sit down to work and I wanted to produce some uh, quality content, right, things like that, 
it'll be really high quality. If I go to the gym, it'll be a really amazing workout because I have, I'm very energized in the morning. And now I've got teenagers in the house who are starting to push that bedtime. So what's happening is I'm becoming underslept because I don't really want to go to bed before them. I'm definitely ready to go to bed before, before say 10 o'clock at night. And I like to be up by five at the latest. So it's, it becomes really difficult. And I think that a lot of people listening, particularly who perhaps will sympathize with this, and it might be through kids, through work. How much should you, I guess, in terms of sleep duration? I, I feel very refreshed after about six and a half hours. Unless I'd had alcohol or something, I would then need more. But generally speaking, I will naturally wake up after that time. So I don't feel like I'm a particularly long sleeper, but I am quite fussy about the quality of the sleep. And that really has an impact on how good I feel. Should in that situation then, from what you're saying, this this regularity, and I see it in the sleep research and in books, we should be going to bed around the same time and waking up at the same time each day. How important is this to get right? And how can people still do this and live their life and, and deal with what's kind of coming up? It is important to get right. And I'm glad that you mentioned it because I feel somewhat guilty of focusing too much on bad stuff that happens when you don't get enough sleep. And it's not all about sleep duration. Sleep quality matters. Sleep timing matters. The regularity of your sleep matters too. And all of those have been shown to independently predict somebody's all-cause mortality, which is their risk of dying from all causes combined in years to come. So if somebody has very variable sleep, then they're going to be at greater risk. If somebody has very short sleep relative to their needs, then they are. If somebody's sleep, sleep quality is poor, so they're waking frequently for long periods, then that's going to contribute too. And I don't say that to scaremonger. I just say that to demonstrate that it's not all about how much sleep you get each night. And you also mentioned that you feel refreshed after six and a half hours. And I think that's absolutely fine. A lot of people say 18, 64-year-old adults should get seven to nine hours per night because that's what the current National Sleep Foundation guidelines are recommend and the reality is that there's variation between people at one end of the spectrum there are genetically short sleepers who seem to need slightly less than six hours per night on average and interestingly they also appear to respond less to sleep deprivation in terms of their rebound sleep afterwards so if you don't let them sleep at all one night and then you look how much sleep they get the night following their sleep doesn't bounce back as much as most people so these people just don't seem to need as much sleep as That's many of the rest of us. That's very interesting because that came up on my genetics that I was a shorter sleeper. And you're right, I don't rebound with it. So like if I'm tired, I'll just go to bed a bit early, but it won't, it might lead to a little bit more, but we're talking sub 30 minutes. I won't suddenly expand my sleep to make up for deficits previously, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I won't suddenly have an eight or nine hour sleep. But you, you probably would also find that if you looked at what was going on in your body and brain, then there would be differences, even if the total amount of sleep that you're getting wasn't substantially different. And you probably see that your sleep is more efficient after a night of insufficient sleep. Yes, I so, do. Yes, yes I do. so sleep efficiency for people listening is just the proportion of time you're in bed, you're actually asleep. So if you're in bed for 10 hours and you actually sleep for eight hours, your sleep would be 80% efficient. And if you deprive somebody of sleep one night and then look at what happens the following night, their sleep efficiency is understandably better. Their sleep is more consolidated. You would probably also find that there'd be more so-called slow wave activity. And yeah. slow waves are high amplitude, slow brain waves. 
that pass through the brain starting just above the nose and they sweep back. And those are very important to lots of different restorative processes. They're important to clearing metabolites and proteins that have accumulated in the brain during wakefulness. They're important to the synthesis of growth hormone in the body and therefore the restoration of various tissues such as skin and tendons and ligaments. They're important to the formation and consolidation of certain types of memory both in the brain and in the immune system. And you'd see an increase in that type of activity too, because your body wants to get a certain amount of some stage of sleep over time. It depends how much of that deep sleep it gets. But returning to your question, regularity is really important. And I think what you're experiencing right now with your kids getting later and later and, and you actually getting earlier because you've passed your peak lateness, which happens around the end of adolescence. It happens around when somebody becomes fully physically mature. From that point to the grave, our clocks get earlier and earlier over time. And so you're in this awkward stage of your kids getting later and you getting earlier and trying mm. to work out what to do about it. And because you're, you're a strong early chronotype, you might find that you're going to go to bed later and later, but you keep waking up at quite a similar time of day each day. And so the question is, how, how can you thrive in those circumstances? And I think you should still try and maintain a relatively consistent sleep-wake schedule. With that said, I think when people get the chance to sleep in a bit, they, they should. For the most part, there are nuances here. One is that if you have frank insomnia and that there is a technical definition to what constitutes chronic insomnia, which is difficulty because of daytime dysfunction, so struggling to remember things or struggling with fatigue during the day, plus difficulty either falling asleep, staying asleep, or difficulty because you wake up much earlier than you would like, that takes place at least three days a week for at least three months, then that constitutes chronic insomnia. And for somebody who has that, they want to wake up exactly the same time each day, regardless of how much sleep they get, because that will help regularize their body's clocks it will, it will help them maintain a consistent pattern of exposure to light, consistent meal times and so on. And because they're waking up at the same time each day, sometimes they'll be waking up when they haven't had as much sleep as their bodies might crave. And what that means is that during the daytime, they'll build lots of pressure to sleep and they'll therefore fall asleep quickly at night and sleep efficiently through the night. Outside of those people though, if you don't have chronic insomnia, then I think letting yourself catch up on sleep a little bit when you get the chance makes sense. But I wouldn't necessarily say that you should try and fully catch up and just sleep as long as you can, because sometimes when that happens, people then really struggle because the, their clocks have meaningfully shifted the next day. And then all of a sudden they lie in bed awake the following evening. And then say Monday rolls around and they have to be up at their normal time for work and they feel miserable. So I think this is when you get that of us, kind of social jet lag, right? Where you don't feel good until Wednesday because you've just gone so out of alignment. Yeah. And so I think for the rest of us who don't have chronic insomnia, maybe trying to keep your wake time within one to two hours from day to day makes a lot of sense. So catching up a bit on the weekend if you need to, but not just sleeping as long as you physically can necessarily. And then making sure that you do things during the day to support your sleep health and your general health. So circling back to what you were saying about your husband, that experience is quite common 
and a lot of it relates to core body temperature. Your core body temperature drops during sleep and it's at its lowest about two hours before you would actually wake up in the morning. And your core body temperature also tracks your physical performance such that in particular, with respect to strength and power exercise, lifting weights, sprinting, that type of thing, your performance in those will be highest around your peak core body temperature, which for most people is in the late biological afternoon, might be around 5 or 6 p.m. for a lot of us. And so your husband's trying to work out when his core body temperature is low. And so he's not that suited to that type of exercise. So he's going to need to warm up for longer. Yes, he does. He has an extensive warm up if he works out in the morning. Yeah. For that and, reason. and it's not just cool body temperature. There, there probably is a slight increase in risk of some injuries. This hasn't been well demonstrated. But if you look, for example, at the spine, then because your spine is unloaded while you're in bed sleeping, the discs between your vertebrae fill with fluid. And that's why you wake up slightly taller. And, and it's great that you're taller in the morning, but the issue is just that when they're pumped up like balloons, if you then take your spine to end ranges, you flex your spine a lot, then you're more likely to herniate that disc. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm scaremongering, but yeah. practically it's just really important that you spend plenty of time in the morning warming up. And then the other thing is just what you can do to maintain your function if you are consistently not quite getting enough sleep, but that is inevitable. But I'll pause there, Angela, in case there's anything that you want to... Yeah, well, I just I was, I was laughing to myself then because my 13-year-old loves to come up and show me how tall he is in the morning and start to tower above me. <laughs> and he just seems to be growing every time I see him. But um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say there. I was going to, there are a few things I was going to pick up on that it just might be helpful for people listening that I've observed. Now, obviously, the aura ring is never going to be anywhere near as accurate as a sleep study, right, when you're in a lab. But what I have observed is exactly what you were saying. So when I have being underslept, I do become more efficient and definitely prioritize uh, deep sleep. So what I see is I might only sleep six hours, five minutes, six hours, 15, but there'll be anywhere between two and a half and three hours of deep sleep and also quite a big chunk of REM as well. And so I seem to just then not have as much light sleep, uh, which correlates with what you're saying. Um, the other thing I'd say is, is it, and, and I see that on the circadian clock that we do see the strength and power uh, is, is better in the afternoon. For me, I'm really starting to fatigue. I think 11 o'clock, having eaten something, would probably be a really, really ideal time when I've done that. I feel very, very strong. As soon as it dips into the afternoon, and it could just be mo motivation, mm -hmm. I'm very, very unlikely then to actually work out or work out as hard as I would do if it was pre-lunch. I'm, I'm like you, Angela. I'm in the first centile of morningness for my age. So I'm 32, but naturally, whereas a lot of my friends of my age might go to bed at half 11 and wake up at half seven, my body clock would, would love to go to bed at nine and wake up at five, which is quite weird for someone of my age. And like you, I, I find that I'm most productive first thing in the morning. And also I like exercising at that time of day too, in part because it's nice getting out of the way. But one thing to bear in mind is that your body will in some ways adapt to when you regularly exercise. And so what you find is that if you have people train in the morning, their musculoskeletal system in particular learns to anticipate exercise at that time of day. And as a result of that, you see a smaller change in musculoskeletal performance over the course of the day such that whereas other people who exercise in the afternoon would see a big variation. And if you look at the difference in strength between your lowest core body temperature and your highest, it's often 
something like three to 10%. It's in that range. If you've got somebody who exercises in the morning, that difference is probably going to be lower than that. So your habitual training times matter. But the other thing is you need to bear in mind what you're optimizing for. So if the most important thing to you, Angela, is your knowledge work, it's your business, it's your ability to produce work that meaningfully improves the lives of others, and you prioritize your work and you feel that you do your, your best work in the morning, then it makes sense to schedule that at that time of day. And then maybe you find that you prefer to exercise in the morning, but you sacrifice doing that and you push it back in your schedule later. The other thing is the interaction between your cognitive fatigue and your physical fatigue. And I think a lot of people have the experience that if they work very hard and they focus hard on something for extended periods in the morning, even if naturally they prefer to exercise in the afternoon, they might find that come the afternoon, because they have all of that residual cognitive fatigue that's built up over the day, all of a sudden the exercise feels that much harder than it previously did. Mm. And there's been some interesting work that's relevant to this. It's not directly testing what I'm saying, but by researchers such as Samuel, Samuel Marcora, showing that if you give people hard and frankly boring cognitive tasks during endurance exercise, the cognitive tasks compromise their performance in the endurance exercise because there's some overlap between some of the brain circuits that are involved in things like motivation for exercise and for those cognitive tasks. Interesting. So how, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I guess people listening are going to really want to optimize this as well. For me, I certainly do, you know, in terms of like really advancing higher performance. It's, you know, is you really want that productivity. Now, when I, from a mood perspective, I have to counterbalance that. So as someone who has struggled with clinical depression and, and taken, you know, sort of bipolar meds and things in the past, I, I and, and want to remain off those against what was medical advice, Mm. I know that exercise is a key thing. Exercise and meditation are two things that are going to help me to stay with a boosted and also sunlight, fresh air as well. Mm. But for, from that perspective, what I notice is there, if I, if I go a few days without exercise, my mood will be quite heavily impacted. So it needs to be very routine. And if I have exercised in the morning, I'm very efficient with tasks. I also get find I'd get back pain if I was to sort of sit down and work. Standing would be different, um, but I need to mobilize my spine and my body. And so it's really difficult, isn't it? Because for someone who's a morning person, then you want to fit this big thing in the chunk of the day. What's what's the most optimal way to do that? Because it sounds like what you're saying is you do actually need to choose if you really, really want to optimize for one um, or I guess shorten that workout and almost do it as a primer, right? Something that primes yeah. your productivity. And again, I can't, I can't really give generic guidance, but I'll, I'll just give an example. And it feels weird using myself as the example. It feels very self-indulgent, but I only mention it just because like you, I'm a morning type and it, it might be helpful just me describing how I think this through. If you look at your sleep and alertness over the course of 24 hours, then your sleep is regulated by a couple of different processes. And you can model those simplistic, regulated by many processes, but you can model those simplistically by the interaction of two different processes. And one is sleep homeostasis. 
It's very simple. The longer that you've been awake in general, the greater the pressure there is to sleep and therefore the more likely you are to sleep. But it's not as if, if you stayed awake for the next 48 hours, you just get monotonically sleepier. The reason is that you've got this other process, which is driven by your circadian clock that influences your alertness. And what you find is that when you wake up in the morning, because your previous sleep has paid off all of that pressure to sleep that accumulates the prior day, your body's clock doesn't need to produce a, a strong alertness drive because there's no sleep pressure to counter. But then as you go through your day and that sleepiness pressure accumulates, the wakefulness drive increases commensurately. And then around the time that you habitually go to sleep, let's say for you, Angela, it's 10 p.m., what you see is a sudden reduction in that wakefulness drive and that no longer opposes all that sleep pressure that's accumulated. And so you fall asleep and hopefully stay asleep. However, there is an interesting little zone in the middle, which is what people colloquially call the post-lunch slump. And it doesn't really actually relate to slump to lunch for the most part. Maybe there are some small effects of endotoxemia, won't go into those. But instead, that post-lunch slump is driven by the fact that there's a small dip in the wakefulness drive that your body clock produces at that time of day. And so what that means is that most of us just aren't very productive at work around lunchtime. And the reason for this is presumably that this is the hottest time of day and it would have been adaptive for our distant ancestors to get out of the sun at this time of day because the sun's rays are damaging. And so I think in the modern context, if you're prioritizing your work, then you might want to do a block of work in the morning and then around lunchtime, when you've got that dip in wakefulness drive, get outside. You're not going to be very productive at work at the moment, but your core body temperature is going to be higher than it was when you first woke up. And so if you're going to exercise, you might find that you can have a really good workout at this time of day, even I if do, it takes actually. you a little... Yeah, and then... Pre-lunch, like yeah. sort of midday, half 12. Yeah, it does. And it, and it powers afternoon productivity, actually. Yeah, and then you get back and you're now out <laughs> of that post-lunch slump period. And all of a sudden, you're, you're better able to work again. So I think just breaking your day in two, breaking up your work day with brief bouts of activity too, which is going to counter things like posture issues that arise from spending too long sitting, but also is going to support your metabolic health. There's lots of research on exercise snacks and their positive effects on things like blood sugar regulation. That's going to be a good way of you being productive at work getting good workouts in because you're not working out first thing in the morning and avoiding musculoskeletal pain by interspersing those snacks while maintaining good glucoregulation and healthy blood pressure and some of the other benefits that those brief bouts of activities confer. Yeah, I love that. And I'm a huge advocate of that, actually, movement snacks as I often set challenges. And I've kind of shared that on Instagram before and people have got quite motivated to, to do them because I think it makes a big difference. For people listening, when you talk about that slump, because I think it will be interesting for them when they're really trying to optimize here where you are less productive. If we take your standard kind of, I think, isn't it about 50% of the population are kind of what um, uh, Dr. Michael Bruce calls the bear, right? They seem to be what the nine to five schedule was created around. And then you've got your early mornings, which are degrees, as you were saying, because you're on a very early schedule. And then you've got your night owls. If we're thinking about this dip where people are like, actually, I'm not productive and I notice it, where would that be falling and what will be the window between sort of your mid type and your, your early mm. and your late? So, so if you look at the far ends of the chronotype spectrum, then 
There are some people who are halfway through their sleep at 11 p.m. They're incredibly early. And there are some people who are halfway through their sleep at 11 a.m. They're incredibly late. So chronotypes are literally distributed all the way around the 24-hour clock. And their midday dip in alertness is therefore going to move somewhat in lockstep with those differences too. For most people, people who go to bed at, say, 11 p.m. and wake up at 7 a.m., that dip is probably going to be between about 2 and 4 p.m., for you and I, Angela, it might be a little bit earlier than that because we're early chronotypes. For some people, it might be slightly later. But again, if you think about the evolutionary context to this, it's going to be around the hottest time of day, which is typically slightly later than a lot of people would expect it to be. It's not midday. It's, it's probably something like 2 or 3 p.m. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I've noticed that. And it's, it's really interesting what you say about these varying degrees, because I've got a 13-year-old son and a 14-year-old son. The 13-year-old, right from when he was born, was just always late. It just drove me crazy. I couldn't get him into the early bedtimes very easily. Whereas my eldest used to wake me up ridiculously early. And it took until he was at least 12, 13, to, to actually get him past 6 a.m. Um and it meant I couldn't have a morning routine on my own for a long time. But now what I've noticed is the 13-year-old the who has this late cycle is definitely pushing that envelope and staying up later. The 14-year-old who's always been an early morning type still seems to want to go to bed by nine o'clock at night. And, and, it, and it's in, even though he's in that classic teenage years where, and he has moved a bit later, just not very much. Mm-hmm. And it just shows you, doesn't it, how kind of genetic this seems to be, which few things are, right? Yeah, and, and sometimes you find that extreme chronotypes do run in families. Mm. And a, a lot of the work that's identified mutations and genes that contribute to extremes of chronotypes has found a familial pattern. So I'm thinking in particular, there's, a, there's an autosomal recessive, which means that if you get one copy of this particular genetic mutation, then it runs through families in the same way that something like well, in the same way that some genetic diseases do. But basically, if if people end up inheriting that particular mutation, then they end up with something named familial advanced sleep phase disorder. And those people go to bed and wake up very early relative to other people. And you see that all the way through the family, elderly people, middle-aged people, young people too. But then outside of those extremes, you might see quite a lot of variation within a family. And of course, it might well be that some of this variation is adaptive. And again, just going back to evolutionary biology, there's been some interesting work looking at pre-industrial people, hunter-gatherers, showing that if you give them wrist-worn actimetry devices, so a bit like a Fitbit, and you look at their sleep-wake schedules over the course of several weeks, but there's barely any time when... If you look at the whole group of people, there's not at least one person a week. And presumably that has some adaptive advantage in that if there were other bands of people who might pose threats, or if there were predators that might pose threats, obviously humans are at the top of the food chain, but if you think way back, then you'd want there to be sentinels who are up at different times of night. And a lot of that seems to just be driven by age, but that variation is surely in some ways adaptive. Now things are changing. So who knows how things will 
more for generations to come. But mm. yeah, it's really interesting, and also everything that you've been sharing around the way it affects metabolism as well and blood sugar regulation. Because thinking back, you know, I am an early morning type, but yet when I was through circumstances, through the organisation, forced to work late at night and into the night. I was, you know, diagnosed with PCOS and insulin resistance in my late 20s and prescribed metformin. And yet now I don't have those metabolic effects. I can, yes, I did change a little bit of my diet, but I wasn't unhealthy. I was still a healthy eater. I still exercised very regularly. I've probably reduced carbs a little bit, but not dramatically. And I wonder how much uh, of an impact it is that circadian alignment that has helped to correct that in me. Yeah, I suspect that there was an element of sleep contributing to that dysregulation that you experienced, but also it was likely your diet composition and your diet timing too. There's a lot of research now showing that how you distribute your food intake across a 24-hour day, in particular relative to your sleep-wake cycle, can strongly influence things like your blood sugar regulation, therefore your likelihood of being insulin resistant, having PCOS. And while this is probably most relevant to people with some sort of metabolic dysregulation, metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetes, hypertension, whatever it might be. It also seems to be relevant to relatively healthy young people too. There was some very interesting work published just a few weeks ago by some scientists in China. And it took two groups of healthy young adults, not obese or anything like that. And it divided them into an early time restricted eating condition or a slightly later time-restricted eating condition, such that people spread out their food intake over about eight hours in both conditions. And what they found was that after a few weeks, the people in the early time-restricted eating condition had in many ways better cardiometabolic health than the other group. They had better body composition. They were more insulin sensitive. They had lower levels of some markers of chronic inflammation they had more diverse gut microbiota. And if you're seeing that in relatively healthy young people, then the effects are likely larger in other groups of people. And if you look at all of the different studies of time-restricted eating done to date, then in general, early time-restricted eating patterns in which somebody has a very early dinner probably seem to be slightly better than later ones. But regardless of the details of the time-restricted eating, time-restricted eating does seem to support cardiometabolic health. And there's been a meta-analysis showing that people tend to eat a bit less, lose a little bit of fat, slightly lower their blood pressure, probably slightly improve their blood sugar regulation too. If, if they follow consistent meal times from one day to the next and eating windows of anywhere between about four hours and 10 hours seem to be beneficial. But I think practically for most people, the eight to 10 hour window is a good place to start. And the earlier, the better. But if you have a family, and you therefore want to have dinner with your family, and so you exclude early time restricted eating in which you skip dinner, maybe instead what you do is you just focus on making your first meal your biggest meal. So that way within your eating window, you're concentrating your food intake at the start of it, and then your dinner is light, and there's plenty of related research showing the benefits of that type of approach, having a, a large breakfast or a large lunch. Mm. Yeah, I've seen that. And I've definitely seen the sleep uh, benefits of having dinner, say, by 6 p.m. Um, and having sort of a really good three to four hours before going to bed. 
Um, because actually, I know a lot of people listening will be trying, will be thinking about, you know, or talk about this hammock curve that you're trying to achieve with sleep, where your resting pulse starts to drop and it kind of drops in the middle of that uh, night and then it starts to rise ready for you to wake in the morning. Um, and I think that time restricted eating and eating away from bedtime is one of the things that really helps with that. Is there anything else that you would recommend for people that are really trying to optimize that? Yeah. I'll, I'll preface my answer by just saying that I wouldn't get too caught up in data provided by wearables. I think the Aura provide quite good heart rate data. It's not perfect by any means, but compared to other wearables, it's, it's pretty good. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. I think the form factor matters. Aura fits your finger quite snugly, whereas a lot of wrist-worn devices are quite loose around the wrist. And so I think the heart rate days tend to be particularly good, although maybe for some other things such as physical activity or is not quite so good. So with that said, in terms of making your overnight sleep as restorative as possible and, and that heart rate profile that you describe, there are some aspects of nutrition that are very relevant. So we spoke briefly about the importance of having dinner relatively early and I think having it no later than two hours before bed is a, is a good starting point. Alcohol seems to be particularly disruptive to some restorative processes overnight. And they're quite convincing data showing that alcohol can tank your heart rate variability. And I don't want to be a prior and tell people not to drink, but earlier is better. And drinks that are less alcoholic are better too. <laughs> One of the issues is just that over time, drinks have got stronger and stronger. Wine now is 14% alcohol much of the time, whereas once upon a time, it was all about 10%. So I think going for slightly lower alcohol beers and wines, if you do drink, is a good idea. And then otherwise keeping that as early as possible is going to be helpful. But in terms of general sleep health guidance, we've spoken about a few important things today, but I just want to drill home a couple of points. So one is the importance of exercise. It's really clear that different types of exercise, including endurance, strength training, can support sleep health. And when people do appropriate exercise training for them, they consistently fall asleep faster, sleep longer, sleep more efficiently too. So it's, it's great for sleep. And if you haven't slept well the night before, you might find yourself less inclined to exercise, but exercise can mitigate some of the detrimental effects of poor sleep. There's been really interesting research by people such as David Bishop on that in the last couple of years. Now, in Is that a specific that, type of exercise that he's found in terms of, or it, like, could you go and strength train or should you be doing cardio? Like, I, Honestly, I think any type of exercise is likely to be helpful. Those particular studies used high intensity intermittent training. And when I say that, I think a lot of people start thinking about HIIT classes and there's a discrepancy between what scientists refer to as HIIT training and how it's used in everyday parlance. So HIIT training is typically repeated intervals that are done just shy of VO2 max. And HIIT training, the way that people might talk about it in the gym, might be circuit classes or something like that. But those it's just vigorous activities and yeah, it's already HIIT. Those details aside, I, I think anything in which you're working relatively hard is going to be helpful. Whether it's strength training, or interval training, or sprint training, or steady state endurance training, I, I definitely wouldn't dissuade people from doing those types of activities. And if you can do those outside, then all the better. Because there's 
an abundance of research showing the negative effects of light at night on sleep quality and a variety of downstream health consequences. There was just some work recently by Phyllis C looking at this and the effects on blood sugar control, which seemed to relate to changes in some stress hormones overnight. So exposing people to modest amounts of light in bed increase their nocturnal cortisol levels and the next day they're more insulin resistant. But if you can get more daylight during the day, then that's going to buffer you against the negative effects of that light at night. It's going to anchor your body's clock to an appropriate time of day. And light is great for many aspects of health. It's obviously important to your circadian alignment, but it also has immediate effects on your alertness. If you get outside into the sun, you're going to feel more alert. It's got potent effects on mood. We know quite a lot about the the neural bases of that now too. And obviously, if you experience seasonal affective disorder, then you will have suffered from this firsthand. I'm not saying you have, Angela, but I'm just speaking to the listener. And then there are also effects of light on things like your immune function, which are mediated by vitamin D, on your blood pressure, which is mediated by changes in nitric oxide signaling, and possibly even things like your postprandial responses to eating. But one of the better demonstrated effects of light is, of course, to your visual health. And it seems that much of the epidemic of short-sightedness worldwide now is driven by insufficient daytime light because sufficient daytime light exposure to the eye seems to affect retinal dopamine signaling, which then influences whether your vision will remain stable or change over time. And if people do lots of close work indoors and don't spend enough time outdoors, especially during development, physical development, during informative years, you're much more likely to end up being short-sighted. So light exposure is key. And then the final tip that I'll give people is I'll give people two more tips and they relate to the circumstances that we're in at the moment. So obviously we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, although the Ukraine crisis has overtaken COVID in many people's minds recently. And that poses a lot of stress. And I think it's important to think about your news diet in the same way that you think about your nutrition. Because if you doom scroll through negative news close to bedtime, then that would be quite cognitively arousing. You might find that distressful. And for that reason, if possible, I suggest that people schedule their exposure to that time of type of news to the first half or the middle of their waking day if possible. And related to that, you don't want to use your smartphone too close to bedtime. There's been compelling research showing that if you take young people with problematic smartphone use and you have them turn off their smartphones half an hour before bed, they fall asleep earlier, they fall asleep faster, they sleep longer, the quality of their sleep is better. The next day their mood is better and their working memory is better as a a result of those improvements to their sleep. And this is down to the light or the smartphone itself? Because you could obviously wear very potent blue blockers and use different screens. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's definitely the, the device in general rather than just the light. So going back to what I was saying about daylight, if you get a really strong daytime light signal, recognizing that our eyes aren't very good at assessing light intensity, then that's going to prevent some of those negative effects of light at night. The thing with smartphones is that, yeah, you have the light exposure, but it's, it's modest, especially if you spend lots of time outdoors. However, the content can be quite captivating. 
And it's easy to use it mindlessly. It's really easy to lose track of time. And then all of a sudden, you've spent the last 40 minutes scrolling through your social media feed, and it's half an hour past your bedtime. And you're feeling wide awake because you've just seen somebody who you know really well doing something that you're already envious of. So I think smartphone use is important to keep in check for various reasons. And then the final tip that I'll give people is if you're feeling really worried at the moment, if you're concerned about World War III or about the fact that COVID cases seem to be spiking, then it might make sense to schedule some worry time, which sounds weird to a lot of people. But the idea is just that if you're very busy during the day at work, then that busyness often suppresses your worries. And then when you finish work, a lot of those concerns rise to the surface of your mind and that might happen close to sleep. And then all of a sudden you go to bed worrying about lots of different things and you find it hard to fall asleep. If, however, you schedule 10 to 20 minutes between the end of your working day and shortly after dinner time, say, and you just sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and you list whatever you're concerned about. And then next to that, you list the smallest next thing you can do to address that concern. And if there's nothing you can do, then don't worry about it. And then you commit to not worrying until your scheduled worry time the next day. Then the rest of your time outside of the worry time, your mind is likely to be clearer. And those types of ruminations are therefore less likely to impinge on your sleep. This this works so well, like writing it down and or or telling someone. Like I know with um with my kids, we would have the we would unpack the worry bag, you know, because the worry That's bag. Great. There's a great book on this. You know, the, the bag just gets heavier and heavier, and you can't keep carrying them around. And I'd say to the kids, you know, when they're young, I still do it with my daughter, my youngest. Can you just let's unpack the worry bag? And she'd unpack it. She'd be like, but mummy, if I give them all to you, what are you going to do with them? And I'm like, I don't worry about them, so don't worry. But they can come out of the worry bag and then they're there and you haven't got to carry them around anymore and you're going to feel a lot lighter. And it's traumatic. It's amazing the effects that it has, which is effectively like the adult equivalent of that, right? You're you're putting it down. Um, I love that. Before you go, because we're, 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 we've run over and uh, I really want to talk to you about making up for sleep deficits because you mentioned there about exercise, uh, which I think a lot of people would have persuaded themselves out of exercise thinking oh, I mustn't exercise because I'm underslept whereas clearly the benefits are good and I can see you shaking your head no they absolutely should um, but I've noticed and, and, and I, I've been trying the the switch on that your company create and what's interesting is I was using it contains creatine and I was using creatine combined with some essential amino acids uh, sometimes in conjunction with other things before this uh, because I found that it really helped with mental function but you've got some very interesting research around how this helps to um, I say make up but accommodate for sleep deficits and I know that you've formulated particular ingredients including cocoa I think that help with um, with people who are sleep deprived uh, and, and really give them that mental focus. Because let's face it, no matter how much we try to be regular about our sleep routine, to, um, to go to bed and wake up at the same time, there are always going to be events and circumstances when we can't. Can you explain what the research shows um, and, and the kind of compounds we should be taking and, and how powerful this particular combination is? Yeah, I'll, I'll just rattle through a, a few things that are relevant. So you, you mentioned creatine. 
And I spoke earlier about that sleep pressure that accumulates the longer that we've been awake. The way that a lot of people medicate themselves out of that is by taking caffeine. The reason is that the main chemical that's involved in that accumulating sleepiness is adenosine. That accumulates alongside ATP in spaces between the cells in your brain. And caffeine blocks the interaction of adenosine with its receptors and thereby reduces that sleepiness signal. Creatine, on the other hand, boosts phosphocreatine stores in both your skeletal muscles, which explains how it improves physical performance, but also your brain. And those phosphocreatine stores can contribute phosphates to adenosine and thereby speed the rate at which is resynthesized. And as a result of that, you get less adenosine accumulating in the spaces between the cells in your brain each day and therefore a lower drive to sleep. And that probably mediates some of the positive effects of creatine on brain function. And interestingly, there have been several studies now showing that if you have people take creatine monohydrate before a period of sleep deprivation, then they cope better during the sleep deprivation. And that's the reason that we use creatine monohydrate in the product you mentioned, Switch On. At an individual occasion, you probably don't want to take more than five grams of creatine or so because some people might experience some osmotic effects of the creatine. It will draw water into the gut, and that could lead to some sort of gastrointestinal discomfort if you take too much at once. And that's why we use that particular dose. But creatine is an amazing supplement. It's great for so many different aspects of health. Blood sugar regulation, it's used therapeutically for lots of purposes. It's been shown to help with treatment-resistant depression, people who take SSRI drugs but don't seem to respond positively to them. If they take creatine monohydrate, then they experience a boost in their mood as one example of that. And there are some metabolic roles of creatine too. could potentially help with blood sugar regulation, for example. And one of the interesting things is that creatine might actually slightly reduce how much sleep people get. And that hasn't been well demonstrated in humans yet, although I know there's a paper coming out on that subject shortly, which does show that. But it was shown very clearly in a study of rats a few years ago by Marcus Dvorak. He basically found that if you supplement the rat's diet with creatine, they end up getting less sleep, less deep sleep, and their sleep rebounds less after sleep deprivation. So in some ways, their sleep patterns mimic the genetically short sleepers that I was describing to you earlier, Angela. So with that said, you would expect creatine to have some negative effects if people are sleeping less when they take it, but the opposite is true. Creatine seems to be good for pretty much everything as far as we can tell. It's incredibly safe too. So that's creatine. Can I just ask you that with the creatine, you were saying if you take it for a period before, so mm. is it is it something, because I know it accumulates in, in the body, doesn't it, over about 30 days. So if you, is this um, something that you shouldn't just take when you're underslept? You should be taking regularly or if you know that you're going to go through a period, like you've got a very intense work period coming up, or do you just recommend people take creatine all the time? I think people probably could take it all the time and get away with it. It's been supplemented for multiple years by participants in scientific research and has been shown to be safe. I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at use for decades necessarily, but honestly, I don't see any particular need to cycle on and off it. However, just in the interest of erring on the side of caution, I wouldn't personally take it for more than about a year at a time. But yeah, I think it's something that has positive effects that accumulate over time and immediate effects are probably quite small. And that's one of the reasons why there are 
other ingredients in this particular product you mentioned switch on. And so one of those is L-tyrosine. There was an interesting systematic review by some scientists who work with the military that looked at different antidotes to the effects of sleep deprivation on cognitive performance. And they basically found that caffeine and L-tyrosine were particularly helpful in that context. And L-tyrosine is just an amino acid that's present in lots of foods anyway. And the reason it's helpful is it's a precursor to some of the catecholamine neuromodulators, dopamine mm. and noradrenaline. And these are involved... I've used it a lot, actually, when I've seen that on people's Dutch test analysis, when I'm looking at that, um, and, and those markers are low, mm. often giving them a little bit of um, that will actually elevate them and they feel a bit more motivated and a bit more energised. Yes, yeah, so... so those catecholamines that I mentioned are important to things like motivation and to some aspects of brain function to memory, the ability to switch attention during tasks too. And when your brain is working very hard, as is true of when you're deprived of sleep, but is also true if you're just doing a cognitive task, which is particularly strenuous, your brain cranks through those catecholamines faster than it otherwise would. And if you look at somebody's habitual diet and the activity in the particular pathway in the brain that synthesizes dopamine and thereafter noradrenaline, then that pathway is not saturated. And what that means is that if you give the pathway more L-tyrosine, then you can increase the throughput of the pathway. And for that reason, if you provide some additional L-tyrosine, you can better support motivation and alertness and cognition during those types of hard exercises. And the dose that you need for that is, is probably about two grams a day. There are some studies that use a much higher dose than that, but there aren't any studies showing positive effects of L-tyrosine that use a lower dose than that. My guess is that a dose of about one gram would be fine, but it hasn't been studied by the scientific literature. And th there are also some alternative forms of L-tyrosine out there, but frankly, the research shows that they don't really do anything so you should just take plain L-tyrosine. Then obviously there's caffeine. I mentioned caffeine earlier. Take too much caffeine too late in the day, you're going to delay your clock and you're also going to lighten your sleep, neither of which is good. However, if you use caffeine intelligently, it can of course be helpful, especially if you need to stay awake for extended periods as in shift work, or if you want to be at your best after poor sleep, you just don't want to take too much of it. And I'll add that it's not only good for cognition but it's good for exercise performance too so in terms of doses and timing this is very generic but i think a dose no larger than about three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight so if you were 70 kilos that'd be 210 milligrams of caffeine which is equivalent to about four instant coffees or a store-bought americano and one instant coffee for example i think keeping your dose at that level generally works well and finishing the later than eight hours before bed too. And I'll just add, there's a website, caffeineinformer.com that contains caffeine contents of commonly consumed items that you might find helpful. And then otherwise, there are a few other ingredients we put in, in switch on too. So one is L-theanine. L-theanine is just an amino acid that's in tea that's been shown to help people better cope with stress. It reduces both their subjective feelings of stress, but also their physiological stress responses to different types of stresses, such as very difficult tasks or stressful situations. And the reason that's in there is that if somebody hasn't had enough sleep, then you see an increase in their baseline cortisol levels. And you also see a flattening of their cortisol rhythm. And 
that can interfere with their subsequent sleep and also have some negative metabolic repercussions too. Cocoa is obviously a key ingredient, as you touched on. Great for cardiovascular health. And obviously, your cardiovascular health is critical to your brain function too, because your brain is enormously energetically hungry. And when people consistently consume cocoa products, cocoa powder, for example, over time, they can experience an increase in the formation of blood vessels to parts of the brain that are involved in things like memory. And that might explain why regular cocoa intake can boost memory, but it's great for your cardiovascular system in general. It also probably has some prebiotic effects on the gut and it might help with some other things like body composition and, and possibly also musculotendinous health and skin health too. I think there needs to be more research on that, but there's some intriguing work showing that cocoa intake can help protect against damage done to the skin as a result of the sun's radiation. And then I'll just mention that there's also chlorogenic acids from green coffee and switch on, which helps with body composition with fat burning in particular. There's vitamin C to support immune function. There's ginger, which helps with musculoskeletal pain and there's inulin, which is very helpful for the integrity of the gut. But I realize that I'm going off on one. Let's just say that what, what we've tried to do is basically- It's very packed full of nutrients. And, and for people who think like they fancy a hot chocolate in the morning, this would be the thing to take because it's got no nasties. It's got only good stuff in it and it tastes great. And uh, it's gonna help your brain and your body significantly, your body actually, from what you're saying. So it's a very good pre-workout supplement by all accounts. Yeah, yeah, that's one way that people regularly use it. But I think mm. the most common way of using it is just at the start of the day. So if, if you normally have two coffees, then you could swap one of your caffeinated coffees for a switch on and you could have a decaf instead of that coffee. Right, in the morning, first thing, in a fasted state, right? Yeah, fasted is probably ideal just because L-tyrosine is one of the important ingredients. And the thing about L-tyrosine is it's a large neutral amino acid. And what that means is that other large neutral amino acids compete with L-tyrosine for uptake in the gut. So if you consume lots of protein alongside L-tyrosine, then you won't end up taking up as much of the L-tyrosine and you therefore won't be able to support catecholamine biosynthesis in the brain as well. Yeah, so take it fasted. And uh, I think you've very kindly given listeners a 10% off if they want to go and try switch on and up their game. Um, so if they head over, is it resilientnutrition.com um, and, and enter code Angela10 at checkout, that will give them 10% off. They will also, if you head over to that site, you're going to find the very, very addictively good nut butters that uh, that, that resilient nutrition produce. And for more on that, we recorded a separate episode that you, listeners can go back and listen to. I think it was released last summer, but we'll link to that in the show notes and also to the discount code, to the website and more information on you, Greg. You've shared so much. I think we've gone on much longer than, than, than I planned. And I'm very, very grateful for your time. You're super interesting to chat to. Uh, where can people find more about you and connect with you? They can find me on social media. I'm at Greg Potter PhD. And I do have a website, but if you need to get in touch, you can get in touch through social media. If you did want to go to the website, then it's just gregpotterphd.com. I desperately need to update it, but there is a contact form that you can reach out to me via if you want to. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in the show notes. And once again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thanks, Angela. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. As always, the show notes will be over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. And you can download the transcript there together with the show notes and all of the other resources that I have on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.